Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, Senior Investment Strategist at Bernstein and Head of Investment Insights. And I'm excited today to be joined by our co-heads of investment strategy, Alex Shaloff and Beata Kerr. And the three of us are going to discuss our latest perspectives now that the first quarter of 2021 is in the books. So Alex and Beata, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us, Matt. Always great to be here. Well, good. Let's take a look at the markets. We're, we're three months in to 2021. It's been a pretty good quarter for stocks, a pretty good year so far. Stocks were up on a global basis around 5%, not so much for fixed income. Bonds were down in the first quarter, mid-single digits as interest rates started to rise. So, Beata, why don't we start with you? You've obviously had a number of questions from clients. You're providing advice. What were you saying? What were, what were the themes that you were relaying over the first three months of this year? Well, first of all, it's not just me. It's everybody here that's recording and our team of advisors and investment strategists around the country and all of our discussions with clients. I would be remiss if we just focus on the first quarter because we have to look back and say, what's our actual investing experience? Last year was an extraordinary year. And Matt, the last time the three of us got together here on The Pulse was last calendar year. So it was a crazy year. And the year ended up being very strong from a return perspective. So the first thing I'd say is the importance of advice and sticking with asset allocation, staying invested in the markets overall, despite, I'd say, a very natural human tendency to not do that, especially in the first quarter of last year. So a lot of our conversations over the last 12 months and continuing conversations in this quarter have not surprisingly been COVID related. What's the market response? What's the economic response? You know, I'm sure all of our listeners know we talked about the possibility of a vaccine rollout in the back half of last year. And that was a controversial statement when we talked about it. Maybe we were more optimistic than others. And that led to more optimism for both the economy and markets. That's certainly true. That played out in the first quarter with the returns I talked about. It, it, it certainly led us as an organization to upgrade our expectations for the 2021 and into 2022. Um, so we are more optimistic now than even we were three months ago. And just to be more specific and to quantify, we've upgraded our GDP expectations for the United States to 6.5% for 2021. That's up from 3.5%, which is what we thought just at the end of 2020, so just three months ago. On a global basis, we've also upgraded our expectations. And a lot of that is exactly what you said, Beata. It's because the COVID situation or backdrop has gotten a lot better, but also because fiscal stimulus is being pushed through. We still have monetary policy accommodation. So there is a very conducive backdrop from an economic standpoint which is then being manifested in not only us, but all of Wall Street, upgrading their expectations for 2021. Now, that's the bull case. And, and I think we shouldn't just talk about the bull case because the counterpoint or one of the manifestations of that economic outlook is that interest rates have moved up. So Alex, maybe over to you, rates have moved up a lot. And that might be part of the concern that some investors have expressed to us over the last couple of months. That's right, man. It's, if it's not one thing, it's, it's another. Right. Uh, if the market's not cratering, then it's growing too quickly and, and we have too much strength. But you're right. It's really since I, I call it Vaccine Monday, 
uh, last November when Pfizer came out on a Monday morning and announced that they had a vaccine with very high efficacy rates. And then the following Monday, Moderna had a similar announcement. And ever since then, rates have really started to move. And we went from less than a percent, well, basically doubling up to where we sit today in 160 neighborhood. And that has created some tension. It's, it's caused some people to get nervous around fixed income and the potential for further volatility there. But it's also caused a, kind of a cross current in the equity market where companies that have been performing spectacularly well from the growth perspective, all of a sudden their future stream of cash flows didn't look as interesting with a higher discount rate than companies that had stress and controversy around them, otherwise known as value companies that, that had strong balance sheets and good current cash flow, maybe didn't have the long-term growth prospects of some of the high flyers. But we saw a really interesting rotation that's been playing out really the last six months where companies that had stocks, I should say, that had been performing very well, uh, certainly in COVID and even before on the back of very low interest rates, uh, they started to wobble. And companies that have been left behind for much of the last few years have really started to turn. So it's not just that interest rates create stress in fixed income markets or even in the minds of investors in general, but also creates uh, uh, some dynamics that are interesting within the equity markets. Now, we've preached the idea of diversification, not just diversification across asset classes, but diversification within equities. Don't lean too much into growth. Just as we said, don't lean too much into value. Give yourself exposure across the board. And that's been the right recipe for the last six months. Having exposure to names that have now seen renewed strength, but also having exposure to names that had done well in prior periods. And so th this idea of going guardrail to guardrail all the way over here, let's get into aggressive growth. No, let's switch to deep value. You really want to play it in a more diversified fashion. And that's been the recipe for success of late. And, and frankly, we think going forward. Alex, that's a great point because we often talk about interest rates and its impact on bond markets. And uh, I appreciate you bringing up the nuance point about how it plays out in different styles of the equity market. Beata, let's bring it back to fixed income because interest rates were going up under the concerns about inflation whether it was infrastructure or other issues, we're going to be raising the possibility of having inflation. Maybe share our firm's view on inflation, given where we are today with the economy where it's at. Yep, that's a good transition from the rate influence on stock markets, because we are getting a lot of questions about this topic from our clients. And we have to separate a rise in rates from a rise in inflation. That's number one. They don't always come together. You can have a rise in rates without a rise in inflation, and you could actually have a rise in inflation without an ensuing rise in market rates. There are different component parts. So that's point one. Point two is it's been decades since we've had an inflationary period, and many of our clients, of course, are still scarred by the high inflationary period of the 70s and ultimately 80s. So the very word inflation sparks this memory of what it was like then. And the real question is, are we worried about an increase in the CPI or are we worried about a sustained increase that has a notable influence on purchasing power? And clearly what we are watching is that there is an uptick 
But the sustainability is the question. And the bottom line is that we're remaining calm about this trend. We're going to see volatility in the short term. We're going to see a disconnect between supply and demand. Look at what just happened a couple of weeks ago with the container ship. Things like this happen and influence the supply chain. And we already have a constrained supply chain at the same time that consumers are re-engaging and spending more. So you're going to have this disconnect between supply and demand that could drive prices up in the short term. But that doesn't mean that we have a sustained period of inflation that has a notable influence on pricing power and, and price impact. And so we think about inflation protection as insurance. We think about if you're going to have assets that are inflation linked, there's some cost to owning those assets, just like there's a cost to owning insurance. You pay the premium up front, and then when the event occurs, there's a payoff. And so we are working with our clients individually to really gauge their inflation sensitivity and see if those portfolios are appropriate. There's not one right answer for everybody. But you're absolutely right, Beata. We, you know, we've talked about a couple of things already in this conversation that are going to be rising or may potentially be rising over the foreseeable future. Interest rates certainly have been, may continue to. Inflation may very well. And the third is tax rates, whether that's because of infrastructure spending or other fiscal policy. So Alex, maybe back over to you. How do we think through that dynamic of the potential that tax rates, whether they be corporate or individual tax rates, will have an impact on the investing landscape? Matt, I would just ask you, don't shoot the messenger on this one. <laughs> Look, it's clear that the Biden administration is signaling for higher taxes, but let's all remember this is a negotiation. Washington is a town of, of horse trading. So we're watching a potential increase on corporate taxes. We'll offset that against uh, what we expect to be a pickup in earnings, but, but we have to, to have a higher corporate tax rate in our model. We're watching the individual income earner. We're watching their tax rates. We're watching capital gains rates, looking at potential changes to estate tax, looking at limitations on itemized deduction for people and file taxes in California like I do or, or New York like Matt. There's discussion about state and local tax deductions coming back, the SALT, if you will. So it's, I, I don't want to seem as though I'm hedging here, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And if you think about why this current administration is pushing the higher tax rate, it's because there will be spending, spending that we've already done to keep the economy afloat during COVID and spending on the other side of COVID to ensure that the labor market recovers, to ensure that the small business environment is friendly, to ensure that our economy is on solid footing. And that, I think we can all agree, that's going to take a little bit more, maybe a lot more support from here on out. So you've got to balance it. People hear higher taxes and it's a negative, yes, but the taxes are supporting, in this case, directly supporting a higher spend level that we would argue the economy still needs. And in a lot of different ways, you have to, you'll tax what will be for corporations, a higher stream of earnings. So there's a, a give and take here. 
gosh, we've only been talking for a few minutes now, and we've already covered so much ground in different areas, whether it's tax rates going up, infrastructure, inflation, interest rates, GDP forecasts. I think all of that has manifested itself so far this year in just three months in the dispersion within the market, whether you look at this sector versus that, there's a lot of differentials, which tends to be Alex, I know you've had conversations with our portfolio managers, tends to be fertile ground for active portfolio managers to utilize their research. That's right. I think one of the things that our portfolio managers, portfolio managers from across the industry have pointed to over the last number of years has been low interest rates. Low interest rates, historically low interest rates, masks, hides, allows some bad companies to make it through. Higher interest rates, higher cost of debt, higher discount rates, that is a key component of separating the, the good from the bad and having the stock prices accompany it. So look, we're not you know, popping champagne bottles at this point, but it's a much more attractive environment for us on the stock picking side today. And you're seeing that already play out this year. And this could be a multi-year type of cycle. If interest rates move consistently higher, if you start to get separation between the good and the bad, I don't want to say, make a promissory statement, but we're in the early innings of what could be a real change in tenor uh, in the equity market. Yeah, markets always move in cycles. Who knows? Maybe this is a cycle or rotation that has begun to, to then reward investors that utilize research. I want to come back to the COVID backdrop. We spent a lot of time over the last year having conversations about COVID, what our conversations with analysts, with portfolio managers were looking like, what their conclusions were. Beata, you spent a lot of time over the last year talking to our pharmaceutical analysts. What's the latest in terms of the facts on the ground that we're seeing as we view the world through our investment lens related to COVID and the vaccine. Yeah, I want to go there. But before I go there, I have to jump back in on the salt taxes because I know that, you know, Chicago, Illinois is like the second city. And on the coast, we forget that we're we're over here paying taxes too. But that salt deduction and property taxes in Illinois actually made a very big difference as well. So it's not just California and New you. York. I right. just I'm just making sure we're representing in the middle of the country every time we talk about taxes that we don't get left out because we pay our fair share here, too. Okay, back (laughs) to COVID on the vaccine progress and on the COVID case count. Okay, so here are some of the facts that are really quite stark. When we had our 2021 webinar back in January, I looked this number up, the seven day average of cases in the U.S. at that point was tracking at 250,000. So now we are recording this just about three months later. That same average is 50,000. We're talking about an 80% decline. So that's real progress. That progress doesn't happen without vaccines. And, you know, touched there a few weeks ago. And I want to note that, yes, right now it's been slowly ticking up since then, we are seeing the variants, and I've been describing it as really vaccines versus variants, and time will tell where we end up. The variants aren't going away, but we are optimistic moving forward. We expected that rise from those contagious variants, so that's not surprising. And actually, the uptick has not been quite as bad as we were expecting. Also, I would say that we put out an estimate back in December of 200 million people being vaccinated by May. 
And that was early and controversial and felt like an enormous amount at that point. And we're recording this April 13th. We could be there very shortly, right? We could be there in a week. So we're actually going to be ahead of that estimate. So bottom line is we think case counts actually peak a few weeks from here and continue to fall thereafter. And how low they go will depend on the final percentage of adults who are willing to get vaccinated. So it's no longer the question of, is the vaccine available? It's who wants the jab in the arm. And then what happens with vaccinating those under 18? We've all seen that the recent uptick in cases is actually being driven by kids more than anything. And then, of course, how well vaccine programs go around the world, because that'll be the next challenge that the U.S. is doing very well in terms of vaccination. But what happens to the globe? And then how does vaccine distribution abroad really impact what happens back here? It's amazing how the narrative just shifts so quickly, whether it's concerns about distribution, right? We were all having those conversations three, four weeks ago and and the inability of whomever was responsible to get the vaccine out to the locations. That's no longer the case. We're doing 3 million vaccinations a day in the United States, and that number is only climbing. Certainly, this is a fluid situation, has been for quite some time. Uh, But we have to also recognize and admit that there's going to be some scarring for some time. And in particular, in the labor market, there's going to be scarring. We've got uh, still people that are out of work today versus the period of time just before the pandemic hit. And so we have to be conscious of them. So Alex, maybe add some quantification to that issue around scarring and uh, in particular, for those that are out of work. Matt, it's a really important point. And actually, Beata and I wrote about this in our fourth quarter letter to clients, where we talked about the permanent versus temporary losses to the economy, not knowing, as as you just heard, how effective the vaccine rollout would be, that the volumes would be where they're at. But it was clear that it would take months, if not years, to undo the damage of the COVID crisis. And as we see economies reopen, it doesn't mean necessarily that the light switch is flipped back on and everything's back to normal because we have a big challenge ahead. We, we've got to not necessarily return to the full employment that we saw pre-COVID, but get close. We've lost about 4 million people from the labor force that well, there's a big question mark whether or not they'll come back. Unlikely. There's 8 million people who have lost jobs, but are looking. So that unemployed number, we watch the first Friday of every month for that new announcement. Obviously, we saw a good announcement the second day of April, April 2nd for the March. Uh, We'll continue to watch that and have solid expectations that it's going to take a while. We think things will get better, but it's going to take a while. Uh, If you think around how many people lost their jobs and how many people have left the labor market, as well as people who graduated college. I mean, it's, it's staggering to think about the length of time that we've been in either a full lockdown or semi-lockdown or just recent reopening. It's not been a terrific job market for new seekers. And so if you think about the total people affected, total number of people affected by COVID, it's about 13 million people, which is almost 10%, it's about 8% of the labor force for the U.S. There's different numbers. Some people would have, using a more loose definition, would say almost 11%. Either way, it it almost is irrelevant. 
the real story is that our economy has a long way to go from a labor market perspective to recover. And while we see these heady GDP numbers, like you just you talked about the earlier, Matt, you know, six and a half percent growth rate, what can go wrong? It's true. That's the economy, but it's not the labor market. We need to see to get any kind of real consistent recovery past 2021 into 22 and 23 and 24, you really need to start knocking a significant number of people off the unemployed line and back into the labor market over the coming 12 months. Because there's a lot of studies that have been completed will show you that the longer people stay out of the workforce, the harder it is to get back in. So we're at this inflection point, this tipping point, if you will, where the damage that has been done over the last 12 to 14 months, we're if it goes any longer and we don't see a significant swing in momentum, then this could be a, a troublesome long-term trend. We're confident that we could see a continuation of the good job numbers that we've seen, but that is a risk. And back to this idea that the picture isn't entirely rosy. There are some real risks out there. We talked about rates. We talked about inflation. We talked about taxes. I put labor market right there. And the fact that the path back is uncertain. But the pace that we're on of adding new jobs every single month would suggest that if we add a similar amount, anywhere between 500,000 to a million jobs per month, we will close that gap between where we were back before the pandemic and where we are. Do the math and that might get us there by the end of the year. But as anybody who's a football fan knows that last 10 yards before you get into the end zone often is the most difficult. So um, just because that's been the pace for some time doesn't necessarily mean it'll be the pace going forward. Let's move from the macro economy down now to investing. I know that's what a lot of our listeners are um, listening in for. So as we start to think about taking everything that we've shared to this point and then say, well, where should I invest? For whatever reason, let's say I've got cash. Let, let's say I just sold a business. Let's say I want to reallocate. There's a lot going on. We talked about a cyclical recovery where your more economically sensitive sectors and parts of, of the investment landscape have done better. Growth, not as much. Small cap has done better than large. There's almost too much to, to wrap your mind around. So, Beata, let me come back to you. Is there one single bit of advice that we provide to our clients at this point in time, if they, they're looking to either make a change or move money into the markets? Matt, you know better than to ask for one <laughs> single piece of advice. All that advice is going to be tailored to the individual and their risk tolerance and what's the use of the money. And so we can't be talking about one piece of advice for everybody. And that it's just not the right thing to do. So we start with that. We start with the risk profile. We start with making sure that you have a reserve for your cash flow. And then we really think about the time horizon, sensitivity to liquidity and taxes. And there's a lot of different options. So that's that's the first kind of disclaimer statement that I would make. But then when you really get down to brass tacks and you say, okay, how can I enter the market today? Where are the opportunities for me to do so? First of all, I'd say, talk to your advisor about different ways to stage into the market. Defined outcome ETFs is something that we've recently added to our platform and provide interesting ways to get into the market with some downside protection. That's point one. But once you've decided to invest in equities, we take a balanced approach to asset classes, geographies, and factors. So you're right that right now we're going through a period of time where value has been outperforming growth. 
However, it's been 10 years that that's been the reverse. (laughs) There's a lot of room and runway to go potentially, and it's still not clear whether that will continue if the economy remains strong. If cyclical earnings continue to pick up, value should do well. But it's definitely a bet to make that uh, you know, a one-sided trade. And, and that's why we don't do that, right? If you want to be tactical and opportunistic, value is interesting. But if you want to be more balanced, we would absolutely continue to recommend exposure to both value and growth and yield and momentum strategies and low volatility strategies. And that's what we do in our core equity exposures for clients. And then I would be remiss if I didn't comment on sticking with our conviction as global equity investors. So look, we're recording this at a time where we know that Europe has stumbled in terms of its vaccination rollout. It is far behind the US. That doesn't mean it's not an interesting place to invest. Abroad is full of companies that are actually global exporters. So the better that we do in the US, the more there's opportunity for companies that are headquartered abroad. Second of all, the US has been the leading market for quite some time and is trading at a higher valuation then companies are abroad. So you've got valuation potential, you've got uh, kind of rebalancing in asset allocation flows. And just because there's been a lag in terms of the issue of the day, doesn't mean the companies themselves are not attractive. So think globally and think balanced. I very often think of it, about this in terms of a decision tree, right? If a client has capital to put to work, I think the first place to start is is the long-term strategic asset allocation. If that's appropriate for the long-term, then it might very well be the recipients appropriately of of that new capital. If not there, then let's look at other areas. And so then you start to get into the decisions that Miata is making about opportunistic and tactical and value versus growth and, and stocks versus bonds. But there's certainly much, much more than the publicly traded stock and bond markets. Those are certainly the two main pillars inside of anybody's asset allocation, but we've been advocating for some time to go beyond those two pillars, maybe add a third pillar in the private markets. So Alex, you've done a lot of work in that area over the last few years. Are there opportunities today that that our listeners should be considering in the private markets? I think so, Matt. I think if you look at what's going on in the public markets, the support provided by the government, the news of vaccines, all of this has been positive for the last 12 months. The returns of public equities and public bonds have just been terrific. And if you were just looking at the trailing returns, you wouldn't know that we've almost lived through a global pandemic. But where that stress is still lives, where it hasn't uh, moved on, is in the private markets. And as your scenario where somebody has liquidity to invest, there's a number of different options that are really interesting today across the private markets. I think of real estate, which is going through a significant period of disruption. What will office look like on the other side of COVID? Hotels, anything where customers walk into a store, retail, what will that look like in the future? Are there opportunities to buy at a significant discount to just a few years ago? In the credit markets, we've seen significant stress among some borrowers. Is there an opportunity to take advantage of that? As a lender, can you generate a better return than you could in a normal environment because of the recent stress of COVID? I think that's in corporate credit. That's in real estate credit, really across the spectrum. And then a, a big part of the private markets is private equity. And you're seeing uh, tremendous growth of technology companies that have a niche offering that's 
interesting to larger publicly traded companies that would come into this market as strategic buyers. And because the publicly traded company stock has appreciated so much, the CEOs and the acquisition teams of those companies are using their stock as, as appreciated currency to do deals. And so private equity is really interesting today. Uh, so really across the private markets, I think that there's tremendous opportunity, but also just outside of traditional stocks and bonds, areas like hedge funds, for example, where you can short different uh, stocks that you think or areas of the market that you think are overvalued or ripe for a pullback. That gives investors some confidence that even at these elevated valuations, there's a margin of safety, if you will, to invest into the markets when you have short positions on that could be protective if markets were to turn uh, hostile. So there's a number of different really interesting investment ideas uh, across the private markets. Some kind of are hybrid public-private like hedge funds where the, the underlying securities are uh, public, but the, the vehicle itself may be private. But I would just encourage everyone to be open to private market ideas because that's a market that shows, Beata talked about expensive stocks, and this is an area where there are some, there's some cheapness. And in the US, cheapness is hard to find, and it does exist in the private markets. Yeah, again, we touched on this briefly, but but our expectations for the publicly traded stock and bond markets are more modest than they have been over the last decade. And so there, for that reason, investors should look elsewhere, just like the largest and the most sophisticated investors, the endowment funds, the sovereign wealth funds look elsewhere. They don't just own stocks and bonds, they own other things. And so the high net worth investor or the organizations that they're linked to should also be doing the same, particularly now with the expectations that we have for returns. We're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon, guys. I got time for one more question. So maybe it'll just be a real big open-ended question. What is it that you're watching in particular for the rest of 2021? Uh, If given one thing to watch, I'm going to go with interest rates for a couple of different reasons. Number one, the primary component of income uh, yield, if you will, for investors that, that want to take cash flow from their portfolio on an ongoing basis is the interest rate environment. And where it was extremely depressed a year ago, it's recovered. And so while rising rates may appear as a negative to some, it does provide marginally improved income streams to even the most conservative investor. For those investors who would love to own a bond portfolio and have it produce returns that it like it used to, interest rates. Watch interest rates. They'll be the key driver of what happens next. In the meantime, I would also say be careful about investments where you have too much exposure to rising interest rates. If there's a a lot of the the different yield uh, structures today have a risk if interest rates were to move higher uh, in any kind of spike fashion. And so interest rates can be good for bond investors as they move higher, but you have to avoid taking too much risk in this interim period. Be patient, be disciplined in your approach, and, and ultimately you'll see the rewards. Look, interest rates are a really important thing to watch. It's hard to find one thing. And Alex and I consciously are, you know, decided to mention really different variables in terms of their impact. So I'm going to say this is not the one thing that matters the most to the markets. But since I talked a lot about our core strategies and equities and stock selection, I'm going to put my one thing out there 
as the influence of the individual investor in terms of market volume and how that results in a change in valuations. A couple of key stats, the individual investor or retail trading, if you will, the volume is up 300% from normal periods of time. And recently, retail trading accounted for almost as much volume as all mutual funds and hedge funds combined. This is extraordinary influence on the market. So it's not just GameStop, it's what happens in overall valuation and liquidity. And it matters. It matters for stock selection and whether fundamentals weigh in and how you actually pick stocks and how do you measure the influence of momentum. So because we're watching really closely the influence and impact of active stock selection, the retail investor matters. They always have but they're mattering much more today in the market than they have historically. So we want to keep an eye on that. Those are good ones. Definitely. I'm going to take moderator's privilege. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to provide two. The first one is uh, geopolitics. You know, Geopolitics has been off the front page of the investment newspapers for uh, some time now, a couple of months. And um, that's an aberration from the last 10 years. And so I can't think that this lasts too long, and and I don't know what ultimately the the geopolitical issue will be, but I know for sure that investors have anxiety around it. And so at some point, geopolitics moves back to the front page. We have some volatility in the markets, and we'll have to protect and watch how that all plays out. The second one is, is I think the consensus, the, the broadly held consensus across Wall Street is very similar to the outlook that we laid out. We are cautiously optimistic. We're seeing an improvement in the economy. We're seeing cases come down. Many on the street are saying the same thing. And that might seem like a good thing because we all believe that it's getting better, but it also can be viewed as somewhat of a, a bad thing because we're all of the same view. And if anything happens to interrupt that outlook, then we all kind of move to the other side of the boat and you have some volatility. So consensus being as widely held as it is today is also a risk factor that we're going to be watching closely throughout 2021. On behalf of our listeners, thank you for joining us once again. So Beata, Alex, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Matt. Always great to sit down with you. We hope you all enjoyed this conversation and the perspective that Alex and Beata and myself provided today on on the unfolding issues in the economy and the markets. As we move throughout 2021, we're definitely going to keep you abreast of our views and our perspective. We're going to share them here on The Pulse and, and our other pieces of content that we push out. If you enjoyed this podcast in particular, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And definitely please email us your thoughts or questions or feedback to insights at Bernstein.com. And be sure to find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bernstein PWN. So until next time, thanks a lot and be well. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.